This is the RTE Lyric FM Leaving Cert Music Podcast, a series breaking down the Leaving Cert Music exam. Joined by second level music teachers Ethel Glancy and Mary McFadden, we'll bring you lots of discussion, pointers for you to consider and suggestions on how you can get your mind exam ready. In this episode, we look at JS Box Cantata. So, manuscripts out, music scores open. And let's get started. So I'm joined by music teachers Ethel Glancy and Mary McFadden. Thank you for joining us, guys. How are you guys? Lovely to meet you. You too, you too. So today we are focusing on Bach. Tell me, what do we need to do in this section of the exam? Well, just to make it a little bit clear about the exam for 2023 first. So as, as you already know, every set work comes up. So the first four questions on the paper will focus on each of the set works. Question one will always be a more detailed one and get a total of 25 marks. Questions two, three and four will get 10 marks each and all questions must be answered. You are probably aware of the adjusted assessment arrangements for June 2023, where the number of questions will remain the same, but there is a reduction in the number of movements you have to study for Bach. For Leaving Cert June 2023, only movements 1 and 7 can be asked about. So we're going to look at movements 1 and 7 from Bach's Cantata No. 78, Jesu Der Du Meine Seele, from the Baroque era. Bach was a very prolific composer in the Baroque era, having written over 200 cantatas. So this is a religious cantata. The literal translation of the title, Jesu Der Du Meine Seele, is Jesus, You Are My Soul and is based on a hymn tune by Johann Rist, but harmonised by Bach to create this work. He created this cantata for Pentecost Sunday service in the Lutheran St. Thomas Church in Leipzig. He would have played the organ and been joined by a small orchestra and a group of musicians. OK, great. So next up, when we're studying these two movements, what are the main things that students really need to focus on? I'm, I might come in on that one, Sive. Um, they really need to be able to hourly identify, that's so important, that skill of listening and discuss the Baroque features specific to both movements as well as other musical features inside the two movements. Things like text setting and word painting. A good suggestion to focus on would be the skill of being able to transcribe or write out the themes from both movement one and all of the melody from movement seven. And across all of the set works, knowing the language, knowing the terms and knowing the various terms specific to that particular work would need to be uh, learned because that is going to, and they are going to be the ammunition that you're going to use when answering an exam question. And lastly, to be able to make comparative judgments, not just between the two movements and back, but also between the different statements of the themes in movement one. They are really the main headings. Mary, what do you think? Absolutely, Adam. Yeah. Okay, so this is a Baroque, a Baroque piece and... How much does a student need to know about the Baroque era itself? How much, to what extent do you need to be able to discuss this period in music? Well, in relation to the features of the music from that period, it's very important that students can identify and discuss those key features. 
And we find them in both of these two movements. And this is what they'd be writing about in their answers. So the title of the work is a cantata. So be prepared to explain what a cantata is, referencing the work. The word derives from the word cantare, to sing. Therefore, it is a musical work to be performed by a chorus or a choir, a group of vocal soloists, in this case a soprano, an alto, a tenor and a bass, accompanied by a chamber orchestra and in Bach's work, including the church organ. We know Bach uses a small orchestra, therefore it would be important that you can explicitly reference the instruments used and not just the family of instruments from which it comes. So know what instruments Bach scores this work for. In other words, one flute, two oboes, one French horn, violins, violas, cellos and the organ. And it's not enough to be able to just list them off. It would be important to examine the role of each of these instruments in both movements. Absolutely, Mary. And there there are just so many Baroque features, like we're not going to be able to reference them all here for the podcast side. But other Baroque features that students should really know about, and it links again to that whole concept of knowing the language and the literacy mm-hmm. when answering the question, you know, something like what is a continuo, for example. So to have a really good understanding of the continuo, you know, it is the baseline, but rather than that having that generic definition, you know, it is the baseline played by the keyboard player, draw reference to how it is used in this particular work. So for example, in this case, you have the organist, which is then doubled by the cello. Um, this Below the continual line, then, of course, you'll see the figured bass. Now, it has been asked or can possibly crop up. And these figures indicate to the organist what harmonies to build above the bass line. And you need to have clear definitions. But again, just to really reiterate that, it's so important to link it to the actual specific work itself. The terminology, as I said, it always needs to be linked to the specific excerpts. So we'd advise students that when they study and understand a concept, so take, for example, the descending chromatic movement, that they need to take the next step to reference specifically where in the music this happens and to be able to hourly identify it as they listen to the excerpts in the exam. And because this piece involves text, it would also be really important to know what compositional techniques Bach uses to set the text. Again, not as a generic definition, but how it relates specifically to this work. So, for example, this descending chromatic idea refers to the grief and suffering of Christ referenced in the actual text itself. But this is a compositional technique that would have been widely used throughout the Baroque period to denote suffering. And you mentioned that this work, box work, is based on a hymn tune, that it was the very essence that, which, from which Bach drew creative inspiration for his cantata. So is this really where students should be starting their revision? Absolutely, Sive, yes. Movement 7 is a chorale, which is a four-part German hymn tune that would have been very familiar in Bach's time to the congregation attending the Sunday worship. It may seem odd to start at the last movement. However, this chorale predates this cantata and Bach uses it as the basis also for movement one. The text of movement one, the chorus, is taken directly from verses of the original chorale. This is why movement seven is really always a very good place to start. So movement seven consists of short chorale with a total of 16 bars. The structure is made up of eight two-bar phrases 
A key piece of learning linked to this is to know the different cadences used at the end of each of the eight phrases and the tonality and the keys of those cadences. The text of the chorale begins with references to weakness and despair, but ultimately it has a positive message, trusting in salvation and the hope of eternal life. A question that can sometimes be asked queries Bach's treatment of the text in the music. Possible discussion points could include... Well, in this chorale, Mary, you have the syllabic setting, which means that there's only one note per syllable. Uh, You also have that each of the eight phrases in music represent each of the eight lines of the text. The piece begins in G minor, and as you know from learning your eight cadences mentioned earlier, they move through the keys of F and B-flat major, therefore painting the positive mood of the text in the music. Um, We don't get the ending in G minor as expected, Mary. No, the piece ends with a perfect cadence, surprisingly not in G minor. At the last moment, the tenor, doubled by the viola, they land on a B natural. Now the last chord is a G major chord. This is what is called a tierce de Picardy. This perfect cadence in G major harmonises the final word ewigkeit, which means eternity. So this is another great example of Bach's word painting. In a chorale, the four parts refer to the chorus of soprano, alto, tenor and bass, with the ensemble organised around the four-part harmony. The instruments are divided out and double the various vocal lines. It would be very important to know and to be able to hear which instruments double each of the SATB voices. And double means that they play the same music as the vocalist is singing. So the French horn, the flute, the first oboe and violin one double the soprano voice. The alto voice is doubled by oboe two and violin two. The tenor voice is doubled by the viola and the bass by the continuo. I think, Mary, we might also advise people listening to the podcast to pause at times like that when they need to be able to take note of that kind of information. Yeah, because that's absolutely. really, really important, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So some musical features as well that you could talk about in this chorale are the melody is sung by the soprano. It moves mainly by step, has a homophonic texture due to the block chords and it's in 4-4 four, four time. It's a very simple melody with repetition and quite a limited range. This would be a melody that really you should try and learn off by heart. Absolutely, yeah. Because past exam questions have asked for missing notes, melody notes to be filled in. And mistakes are made sometimes when students don't attempt this dictation question and think it's not very many marks, but it really can uh, make a difference. So try not to leave it blank. Practice writing the theme out and test yourself. Can you remember where all the notes go? A very good strategy to learn this melody would be to add tonic sulfa, listen to it and sing along many times to get the melody learned off. The dictation practice and training of being able to write down what you hear will come in handy as well if that dictation piece appears in question six, the oral skills question. Another strategy some students might find useful would be to input all four parts into their chosen notation software. This could be a useful exercise as well to help you memorise it. Mary, why don't we actually take a listen to it and maybe as you listen you could uh, check out can you hear the eight phrases, can you hear the music move from that 
suffering and that grief that's referenced early in the text and then it moves towards that hopeful and positive message as it moves in towards and through the major keys and then you as you would expect we're moving towards that finished cadence and we expect it in the G minor but we get that beautiful sound of, yes. and feeling of salvation and hope as it finishes with the tears to Picardy. <laughs> rose in my head there maybe do you mind if I ask just about like you know retaining a melody is something that a lot of people find diff- really difficult and then re- writing it in the exam you know they talk about you know your inner ear and your inner hearing but how to like drown out the noise of the exam drown mm. out the anxiety mm. and really be able to focus on the task at hand because I think that's what f- people find so difficult is oh god immediate recall yeah. oh god I'm so anxious yeah. I don't know what to do you know so how so well, the first thing I say to anybody who feels like that, it's completely natural yeah. to feel like that. Mm-hmm. So I think, Mary, you probably would agree with me. The yeah. first piece of advice is stop the panic. You know, stop panicking because while you're panicking, the excerpt is being played and you're actually missing one of possibly three statements or three listenings to that mm-hmm. excerpt. The second thing that I'd say is... People have lots of different ways to learn and whatever way works for you is the best way. So by no means take what I'm about to say and say that's the way I have to do it. But certainly some students will go through the rote learning and just practice writing it out a gazillion times. And that's brilliant if that works for them. Other students will just sing it. Other students might create their own lyrics, put their own words to it, something that's relevant for their context and that helps them remember. Uh, I remember one time I had a student and believe me, it didn't matter. I actually nearly took up gardening because no (laughs) strategy worked until I discovered that student was really good at art. So I invited that student to paint the shape of the melody in colour and whether it went up or it went down and... Yeah, it certainly worked and helped for them. So even Mary, if I may ask you, you know when you're kind of, a lot of students, something that they would struggle with is doubting, that self-doubt. You write down the melody and then you're like, oh no, that's wrong. Oh no, I don't think that's right. You rub it all out again. You fill it in again, you rub it out again. So what do you think is the best way for students to again stay calm, but to trust yourself and to trust that you've done the work, you know the melody, you learned it and to trust that inner hearing and to trust Mm. that, you know, that subconscious musical ability that, you know, you've been training yourself to do. 
I suppose, really, I think we need to fall back on the tonic sulfa mm. because if you know that melody with your tonic sulfa, it just comes immediately back into your head every time you listen to it over and over again. And students just sing along every single time with their tonic sulfa and then they can notate it if they sit down with their manuscript. Perfect. So we go back to the Bach. And I'd add one other point to that, actually. You mentioned rubbing it out and starting again. In the exam, rub out nothing. Nothing, really? Nothing. Do not use Tipex. Because very often, when you think about it, listening to music is part of everybody's life and it's as natural as breathing. And sometimes your first intuition could be the right one. So even though you might be full of self-doubt and stress is part and parcel of exams, we all know that, we've all walked that walk. But just try to train yourself just to put a line through it because the examiners will look, won't they, Mary? Mm -hmm, They'll look at everything that the student has put down, you know. And I think it's really important that you just got to trust that, you know, you're at that gig, you're listening to Ed Sheeran and all of a sudden you turn to your friend beside you and you say, wow, isn't that drummer fantastic? That's that natural skill of being able to distill sound and listen. So that is the same skill that you will bring to your listening exam. And then trusting yourself, follow the shape of the melody. Is it going up? Is it being repeated? Is it going down? And you have it there. But it's never that two and two is always four. Sometimes two and two is not five can be the right answer. And what I mean by that is the shape of the melody. You might be slightly out in the intervals, but the process of being able to write that melody down, you've moved in the right direction. Your shape is correct. So there'll always be some marks towards that. Okay, and back to this, you know, trusting your musical instinct and, you know, thinking that you recognise that something sounds the same. In Bach, we know that movement seven, 16 bars in movement seven, form the basis of the first movement. So what tips would you give again for recognising, you know, this repetition within the work itself and saying, oh, I know that, I can hear, you know, this movement and that movement. What's the best way to do that? I, I think there should be a neem written for this particular movement. In fact, there probably are lots out there already. <clears throat> because in comparison to the chorale, this is a very complicated movement. And with any aspect of studying and learning and all of that entails breaking it down into smaller chunks. In other words, work out a structure for the movement. This will definitely help you to understand it better and then be able to tackle the questions in the exam. So it's really knowing again about what the Baroque features Bach used are and not just what he used but how he used them in the various sections of the work so in particular with the first movement some people call it the chorus we would always advise students to be completely familiar with the different themes before trying to understand how they work out you know being able to hear them being able to sing them maybe pick you know take up your electric guitar try and play that descending chromatic bass line on the bass guitar could sound really fantastic Um, When you have these themes then on your ear, this is when you can then check out how Bach, what features he uses and what the treatment of the particular themes are. Now, we would suggest there are quite four to five, Mary, there's about four to five different themes in this movement. Okay. Um, And they are 
There, and there's lots. That's another thing we need to say. There's lots of different labelling. Like the first theme can be labelled 1A, the Ritornello theme, the grief theme, etc, etc. You trust your music teacher. Go with the labelling that that teacher, he or she will know you the best. All right. So trust your music teacher and use that labelling. But we would suggest it would be really helpful for you to take these themes separately, get very familiar with them, learn to quote them in preparation for, as we just discussed, a dictation style question. So, for example, um, the descending ostinato theme. So you need to really have a clear understanding of what an ostinato is. But if you write in the exam, an ostinato is a repeated pattern. It's not strictly incorrect because we do know that an ostinato is a repeated pattern. However, you need to reference it to the work. So in this movement, this four bar distinctive theme in the bass underpins the entire movement. All right. So Bach then skillfully moves this theme around the instruments and the voices. Sometimes he uses imitation, which would be a Baroque feature. Sometimes he inverts it. Sometimes you might hear it in canon, etc. So a useful exercise would be to trace this theme. You know, find where is the rugby ball on the pitch? Let the, the rugby ball be the descending ostinato. Follow it. Round the pitch. I love that. When That's are you great. Catch yeah. it, you know, and follow it from the beginning to the end. And when you have a sound knowledge, then of okay. That's the treatment of the theme. Then you can begin to find its place in the actual piece. Maybe we might have a listen to that theme. With that, yeah, let's have a listen to it. Yes. tip that might help you in studying this can be a complicated movement. So just like the chorale that Mary was talking about and the eight lines of text where you found the eight cadences in the first movement, there's also eight lines of text in this movement. But here what Bach does is he lays, he lays them out different from the other movement. He groups lines one and two together lines three and four together. So there's two sections and then five, six, seven and eight get their own sections. So when you're studying this, you can divide your notes into six sections and then investigate more deeply what's going on in each one. The form of the movement then is called ritornello form, uh, ritornello meaning return. And why is that? Because the ritornello theme is heard before and after each of these six sections. So a suggested approach then is to take each of the six sections, listen with your score, use your score to support you, even though you won't have the score in the exam. That's a really good way to get it on your ear. And then listen without the score. Develop your own individual notes to help you navigate the piece and ultimately get totally familiar with all of those fantastic musical features, naming them as you hear them hourly. So, for example, take one feature, trace it through, for example, how does Bach treat the modified chorale melody, for example? Well, then listen to it, follow your score, and you might end up with something like the modified chorale melody is always sung by the soprano. It's doubled by the French horn and by the flute an octave higher. 
throughout the entire movement. Just having that in your back pocket is a fantastic amount of uh, knowledge in one answer to be able to use. So what are the other solo voices doing then if the soprano is doing that? Well, they're accompanying the soprano. So take time to consider that these solo voices, and actually this is a really strong tip, Mary, isn't it? Yeah, the solo voices in the first movement always enter in canon. But does Bach bring in the voices in the same order every time? No, he doesn't. OK, so that would be really good one to trace between the six sections. Ask yourself, what are the order of the voices, for example? All right. So that's that's really, really important. And I would for generally the alto begins, followed by the tenor and then the bass. But be careful, though, it's not always the case. So we're not going to give you all the answers. No. You're going to have to go and suss that one out. And yourself. on following the score, Miriam, I put this to you. Um, what would you say to students that would feel like their their eyes can't keep up with their ears? So they're going through the score and they can they know what point they're at, you know, early, but they don't they they can't keep up, you know, with the notes on the page. And that can get quite frustrating. You know, you try a few times, oh, I'm never going to get it. I'm never going to be able to, you know, read this score because it's quite an intimidating thing. Most people have never read a full score like this before. Well, let's say if their teachers will have taken them through the score in kind of a quite slow, gentle process and they will have taken their highlighters and they will have annotated the score with all the features and they will have coloured in maybe the different themes, uh, different colours to kind of colour code it. And that will help them when they maybe get lost occasionally to kind of get back to where where they are in the music. OK, perfect. And another thing to remember there, Sive, is they're not looking at the score for the first time in the week before the exam. Of course, well, yes. One would hope. But, uh, one would hope. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but no, in fairness, it's, it's you know, it's again about not trying to take a full 11 minutes or whatever of music and assimilate it in regardless of how good you are. It's really about breaking it down into more manageable chunks to really scaffold and support your own ability and your yeah, own Of learning. course. So however much you might think, oh, they yeah. keep telling me, you know, break it down bit by bit. You can't inhale the whole music curriculum in one evening. You have to break it down. That's the best way to learn. You can't just rote learn these things and think, you know, it'll be fine on the day. It really is in your best interest to know, break it down bit by bit. Mary, will you tell us about another Baroque feature that we might, it might be key. We should really know about this one. Well, I think we should talk about the Chacon. This is where the descending ostinato theme moves from the bass line, for example, to the upper oboes and then is heard in the voices in imitation. And it's a very good example of Bach's polyphonic texture. So I'd advise students to trace the ground bass theme throughout the piece and you'll find more examples of the um, descending theme moving up to the first and second violins. Another Baroque feature is inversion. And you can see this where the alto and the tenor sing the descending ostinato theme upside down in canon. So it moves upwards. And that's another example of his polyphonic writing. The most important thing there is that the chicane is sometimes that descending ostinato theme. Some people call it the chicane or they might call it the ground bass. Yes. But it no longer is a ground bass when it comes out of the bass line and moves up into the upper voices and the upper instruments. And this is actually, this little audio clip that we have here, you'll hear three Baroque features here. And as we listen to it, what I would say to you is, listen out to the descending, uh, the inversion, first of all. So the inversion is where Bach took that descending theme and turned it upside down. So the first thing you should hear is the music moving up. OK, the second thing, Sive, it's that 
canon. It's that imitation. And the third thing, it's no longer a, a ground bass or a bass line. It is now the Chacon theme because we're hearing it in the alto. Then the tenor will answer and then the bass will come in. Will we have a listen? Yeah, let's do it. So melisma, what is melisma? And how important is it to know about melisma when studying Bach? Well, I suppose there are two ways of setting a text. It can be syllabic, where there's one note per syllable, or, as you just mentioned, sometimes composers use a melisma. It's kind of to emphasise the words a little bit. So it's melisma is where there are two or more notes to a syllable. So it's really important for students maybe to gather up some examples from the text where melismas occur and have them. I know it's a German language, which is a bit challenging for some, but it's good to learn some examples and then to orally recognise them as well when they hear them. So maybe that would be a very good feature to to investigate. Particularly when you're talking about the box treatment of the text, because, you know, you can't talk about this piece because that's what the cantata is all about. Um, He often uses a a change of key to illustrate the text. And, you know, one such example here is, is the text. If you listen to the text, it says, a haven safe before me. That's the translation, obviously. Um, but you'll hear the key change into the major key. So it's it's one that Bach uses regularly, actually, to 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 set the text, to set the mood. And what else would be really important to know in preparation for answering this question in the exam? Well, I suppose look at some other Baroque features like pedal notes, sequences and look at ornamentation. And you'll find them those are kind of examples throughout the whole movement. Mm hmm. And is there anything else, any last skills that a student should really, really harness and really develop to equip them with, you know, the best knowledge for this exam, for this section? Yeah, absolutely. Not just for this section, Saiv. I think it it's across all of the listening paper and that's the skill of being able to make a comparative judgment. In relation to the Bach itself, what would you be comparing? Well, first of all, the most obvious one might be the comparison of how he changes or varies or treats the chorale melody in the first movement as opposed to how he uses it in the last movement. You might also compare the statements of all those four or five themes, the different statements in the first work. Really, really important. Um, So it's a very worthwhile exercise to do. But there are three really important actions involved in the skills of compare. And I'm going to share that with you now. When in any exam, in fact, doesn't matter what subject you're studying, if you've asked in the question to compare, you have to do three things. You must reference the differences as well as the similarities. Like in the old days, in my day, it used to be compare and contrast. But now contrast is inherent in that action verb of compare. So that's the first thing. The second thing, you must always reference both sections or themes. You can't compare without making reference to the two. Now, I know that might seem very, very straightforward, Sive, but... Maybe obvious, but it's not obvious. But exams do strange things to us all, you know, so you have to be kind to yourself. So remember that. Reference both sections or both themes or both movements. And lastly, 
always compare like with like. So to give you an example, say you were asked to compare the first movement with the seventh movement. So try to find two to three similarities and two to three differences. So the similarities could be both movements are in G minor. Both end on a tears de Picardy. And in both movements, the French horn doubles the soprano voice. So you can see I've referenced the same musical pointers in each of those. Whereas when I'm talking about the differences, and this is where sometimes marks can be lost. When you're talking about the differences in the same way that you found them, similarities using the same pointers do exactly the same thing with the differences. So, for example, in the seventh movement, the chorale theme is in 4-4 time, but in the first movement, it's in 3-4 time. So you're looking at it through the same musical feature. The texture of the seventh movement is homophonic and the first movement is polyphonic. And last difference could be something like the form of the seventh movement is eight two-bar phrases and the first movement is in ritornella form. So we would always recommend, wouldn't we Mary, that yeah. you compare all of the various sections of the first movement under the headings then. Maybe a nice little extension piece Compare, go a little bit deeper, compare them under the headings of tonality, the entry of the voices, what features you hear and anything else that maybe your teacher has shared with you as well. And Mary, just before we finish, do you have any final words of wisdom when tackling um, Bach during the exam? So final tips, be careful. Marks are sometimes lost when students say music changes key in the last bar where a chair stupidity is used. Remember, a chair stupidity doesn't change the key, but finishes on a tonic major chord. OK, so it's kind of like, you know, a, a hint, but we're not going all the way. We're not totally changing tonality. It's literally a cadence. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So then another thing would be the form of the first movement can be described in various different ways, like a chacon or a pascaglia. And as we know, they are both pieces based on that ostinato bass line or ground bass. It can also be described as ritornella form which is based on a recurring theme, and all these answers are acceptable. So trust what you've learned in your classroom and use whatever language you've learned there. That would be my advice to students. OK, great. Ethel, Mary, thank you so much for joining us. That's the end of this episode of RT Lyric FM's LC podcast. Good luck, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of the RTE Lyric FM Leaving Cert Music Podcast, hosted by me, Sive Downs with guests Ethel Glancy and Mary McFadden. This podcast was produced by Gail Henry. You can listen to the rest of the episodes in this series on the RTE radio app.